0: I love this quote by the, um, p- the naturalist and essayist, Diane Ackerman, who says, On the periodic table of the heart, somewhere between wonder on and unattainium, wonder on and unattainium, lies presence or mindfulness, which one doesn't so much take as engage in, like a romance. And without which one can live just fine, but not thrive. I think it's understated. I think actually we do a lot more than thrive. We, I guess, we really thrive with mindfulness. And maybe we don't live just fine with it. But I still love the. Um, I love the poetry of this quote. So I want to talk tonight about mindfulness from the perspective of uh, just some practic practicalities obviously we we're, we're here because we're interested in mindfulness and what it is we're here because we're some of us are facilitating mindfulness we're here uh, because we're practitioners first and foremost and um and we can never get enough of the mindfulness. And already the conversation started started earlier this morning about well, the definition and mindfulness versus awareness and translation. And um, I, I, I'm not sure you all know this, but the scientists cannot agree on what mindfulness is. Do you know that? The research scientists, there was a paper in 2004 that that sort of people mostly agreed on a working scientific definition. Because if you're going to study something, you need to be able to define it. They couldn't quite define it. And then that's been revised. There's been more studies since then. And there's there's a good working definition. But when scientists go, let's say neuroscientists, go to look for um, mindfulness in the mind, in the brain, they can't find it. It's not like a certain part of your brain lights up when you're mindful. That would be very neat and, and would work well if that was what happened, but that's not what happens. So what they can measure instead and what they can notice is uh, certain qualities that are similar to mindfulness or that one imagines occurs in someone with mindfulness, such as compassion, and look at the parts of the brain lighting up there. But um, until they discover the mindfulness part of the brain, well, we're just waiting for that. So mindfulness, so that's from, that's a scientific perspective and in a few days we'll have a scientist here, Cliff Saren is going to talk about the science of mindfulness. And, um, but from an educational perspective, the word mindfulness is quite slippery. It can mean so many different things, right? We talked earlier today, Mark was talking about sati, the root word from the Pali language and Pali, the early language that the Buddhist teachings were um, first put down in. Um, so we can see my, we sometimes think of mindfulness as a meditation practice, um, or, but it's so, and a specific technique for paying attention, but then it's not just a meditation practice, right? Because we can be mindful at any point in the day. And, and, um, so I think of it often as a quality of attention, a certain quality of attention that actually is not necessarily dependent on meditation. So mindfulness is a meditation, but it's not dependent upon a meditation. Uh-oh, that gets a little slippery. It's oftentimes confused with its outcome. So for instance, it's, it's absolutely connected to certain outcomes, like it's very connected to more compassion, more wisdom, more patience, more emotional regulation. But these things in and of themselves are not mindfulness. They're the results of mindfulness. So again, we can measure those things, but not exactly the mindfulness itself. You know, there's all sorts of questionnaires you can use to measure mindfulness. So scales, so it's often subjective reports. People will say, um, when I walk down the street, I'm usually noticing that I'm walking. And you, you write true or false. What happens is, of course, that the people who are really practicing mindfulness often score the worst on the mindfulness scales because they realize how much they're not mindful. <laughs> and then when they start to fill it out, they'll, they won't do so well. Whereas someone who says, oh yeah, I'm mindful, no problem. Check that off, check that off. So it's, it, anyway, the whole thing is, it's, it's interesting if you're into that kind of thing, which I sort of am. Um, okay, so it can be connected to an outcome but then we can also use mindfulness in the sense, and this is what some of the scholars are saying, that it's connected to, um, or that, that actually a truer definition is something like presence or open awareness, that that's actually a better definition of sati, that word S-A-T-I, than mindfulness. And so when one's mind is resting in a state of openness and connectedness, clarity, brilliance luminosity that one is being mindful and that is true mindfulness so this is interesting is that is that what mindfulness is and um and then there's the really extreme versions of well mindfulness is just it's you know be mindful of how you use uh you know how you recycle be mindful of the planet right be mindful of your right so it's used in a very colloquial sense too and then we might even imagine that mindfulness is a kind of catch-all phrase for the Dharma, right? For some people, that's how they think about it. And I'm sort of leaning towards that direction. Now, John Kabat-Zinn, who has a definition that many of you know, of course, because many of you are trained in MBSR, he uses uh, paying... Uh, I forget what it is. Anyway, you know what it is. <laughs> you know what it is. <laughs> Paying attention on purpose <laughs> to the present moment. What is it, Bob? Without judgment. Without judgment. Thank you. Okay. Um, but recently I found, um, when he was interviewed in The Inquiring Mind, he said, we use, when we use the word mindfulness in MVSR, we mean right mindfulness. I use mindfulness as a kind of umbrella term. Woven into mindfulness is an orientation towards non-harming and seeing deeply into the nature of things, which in some way implies or at least invites seeing the interconnectedness between the seer and the seen and the object and the subject. It's a non-dual perspective from the very beginning, resting on an ethical foundation. Okay, that's a huge definition of mindfulness. And it's a beautiful one, right? Because it addresses some of the critiques that people have that, oh, mindfulness is just a technique to teach you how to pay better attention. What he's suggesting is it's resting on an entirely ethical foundation rooted in interdependence. So... Um, so this is just a little food for thought as I go more into the practical, the practical aspects of mindfulness. But I just wanted to touch on it and show, just kind of lay the map a bit of, of the complexity and don't even get to the foreign translations, <laughs> at least not right now. Okay. So, um, so in 2006, there was a paper published by Shauna Shapiro and a couple of other people uh, called Mechanisms of Mindfulness. And that's been used quite a bit. And it's, it talks about the three components of mindfulness, and that's gonna, a little bit how I'll structure things. And one is intention, one is attention, and the third is attitude. And she sees this as an interwoven aspect of a single process that occurs simultaneously. The intention, the attention, and the attitude. So I'm going to take it piece by piece because I think it's helpful for us in looking at our own practice. And really, I want to focus on mindfulness in our own personal practice and where we are in retreat today. But I'll use that as the frame. I'll start with attitude. Usually they start with intention, but I want to start with attitude. So the attitude, Bob has been teaching quite a bit about attitude, the frame, the, the approach that we bring to our practice. So when the, when, um, In in John's definition of non-judgmentally, we're bringing a certain approach to our practice that's loving, that's compassionate, that's accepting or maybe allowing, of letting things be instead of holding on tightly. And this is, of course, very, very important as part of the definition. So the definition is not just about training attention. If it were just about training attention, anybody could train your attention. A sniper trains his uh, or her attention, right? And can get really good at shooting that, whatever he shoots, gun. I don't know much about (laughs) snipers. (laughs) A chicken has excellent attention, (laughs) right? A chicken just pecks and pecks and pecks at the dirt. Um, So... Without the, the type of attention, which for some people, the definition I use is paying attention with an open, curious attention. Sorry, paying attention to the present moment experience with openness, curiosity, and a willingness to be with what is. So that's how I get at this quality of, I, I don't use the language of non-judgmental. I prefer the language of willingness to be with what is. But it's all getting at the same thing this quality, this loving space that we can meet our experience. And so many of us, so many of us come to the practice with an inability to meet our experience with love, with acceptance, with openness, with beginner's mind, with care. And that's because many of us, maybe we're perfectionists, or, you know, and immediately I have to be doing my practice just right or we're, we have high expectations about what our practice is supposed to be like or maybe we've been practicing a long time so this retreat better look like this and if it doesn't, something's <clears throat> wrong with me, maybe. And so we learn to meet the experience with the state of, with this, with this kindness. With this kindness. And we learn to, when our, self, when our perfectionism arises, to not get caught in that, to just see it for what it is, to go, oh, there's perfectionism arising. Now, there may not be a single person left who hasn't heard this, but I will read it. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, If you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time. If you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of yours something goes wrong. If you can do something stupid without beating yourself up. If you're happy pretty much most of the time, then you're probably a dog. (laughs) Oh good, a few of you hadn't heard it. (laughs) I'm pleased to know. It would be nice if we were like that. We're not. Mark's going to talk about compassion for you tomorrow. That's, that'll be the topic, and so it's a huge one. But I just want to say that this, the key piece of the definition of mindfulness is this attitude of kindness, of not judgment, of willingness to be with what is, meeting our experience as it is. I was with my daughter... Um, I was taking her to a to a like a, a show of um, just a little play, and she was very excited. But this was when she was about three. But she's not a fan of big crowds, and so when we got there, of course, there were lots of kids running around, and she was very. Um, she just look, kind of looked nervous, and so I started saying, "Oh, look! It's not too crowded. It's not too noisy. It's not too you know, <laughs> the mommy thing where you're trying to pretend that everything is a different way." <laughs> Um, and basically, I wasn't willing to show up with the experience. You know, I wanted to make the experience different. And, um, and she looked at me and she said, No, Mommy, it is noisy. <laughs> but I can handle it. Right? So this is, this is the quality that I'm talking about, the quality that can be open and accepting and real about what is our experience and embrace it even when it's it's rough and sometimes our experience is rough as we know. Okay, so just just I'm just touching on this briefly the attitude piece because we've been going into it quite a bit. Let's talk about the uh, the other a, the training attention. The training attention is as we know one of the toughest things we do here and the hard, one of the hardest things we teach. Not because it's hard to um, explain it, because it's not hard to say, pay attention to your breath, your mind wanders off, bring it back, right? Of course, that's a, that's a, the simplest way we could talk about the instructions. But because... Most of us have trained our attention for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, and so on years to not pay attention. And so what we're dealing with, all of us inside our body, are these minds that want to do anything except pay attention. And so, and there's something interesting that I've been reading about with our brain biology, that the brain is actually conserving energy. It doesn't want to pay attention to an automatic process right this is this is a process that in fact it's doing its best not to attend to because it has many other things to attend to so it's actually kind of going in counterintuitive to what you know what our biology wants to do however as you know and 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 we all know how busy we are and we all know what this um crazy world is like these days i think it's worse do you think it's worse it's like more busy maybe since the internet it got worse, right? It increased in our sense of busyness and responsibility, and it impacts our minds. You know, it really impacts our minds. I think we're in the biggest experiment. We're going to see what happens with kids, you know, the kids starting when the internet and computers, and right, you know what, I'm heading off <laughs> into another topic that I probably could talk on for an hour, but I won't. Okay. So, um, so, so, it's hard. It's hard for us to train our minds to come back into the present moment. And so I'm curious, how many people's minds were really busy today? Just raise your hand. All right, now how many people's minds? So that was a good portion of you. How many minds were a little bit less busy than yesterday? Okay, how about more busy? Okay, so that happens. That can happen too. It can increase. But we do, we have, the in each of the groups, people were talking about, our that I did, we were talking about our busy, active minds. And so our minds don't want to, want to calm down. By the way, um... You know, oftentimes we'll talk about it as it's a muscle that we're building up, the muscle of training our attention to come back into the present moment. And so it's good to have something to work with. If I was going to train my bicep, I wouldn't use this pen. You know, I would keep lifting and lifting. It would take a really long time to get a nice bicep. So you want something heavy, like maybe that, Oh, right? It's not that heavy, I'm joking. But, but it's kind of a good one. All right. Has strong biceps from lifting a four-year-old. So, um, so what we do, we have a mind that's going, that's getting lost again and again and rushing away into the past and into the future and planning and remembering and spacing out and thinking of this and going there and so every time we bring it back it's like we train this muscle. And so if you have ADD you have more opportunities to practice. So your muscle's going to get even stronger. So it's actually good news. If you think that you're having a really hard time, you're actually working the muscle harder. It's getting stronger. It's the diligent application that trains the attention. It is not about having your mind attending to your breath every second. That is usually not what happens for most people. It can over time with a lot of practice and people have different varying levels of concentration and capacity to be present. But it's the diligent application, moment after moment, coming back, coming back, that builds the muscle and builds that capacity to be present. So as we build that capacity, that capacity then transfers out into our lives, into the world And this is so powerful when we begin, and all of you have had the experience of suddenly being mindful in the midst of the day. In a time when you might have been stressed out, you remember to be mindful. It's often the practice of paying attention, of doing your meditation practice that can bleed out into the day. We start with the the anchor. We start where it's neutral. So for most people, the breath is neutral. You will find that there were people who the breath is not neutral. Meaning maybe they have a cold or they, um, you know, so when they breathe it's uncomfortable or maybe because of past history the breath is not neutral or they just, it doesn't work for them. So that's why we give options and they can attend to the sounds or the sensations in their hands or in their bodies. So we use the neutral anchor to calm, clarify, gather the mind and Ultimately, the mind begins to settle. Our mind begins to settle. I have a slight pet peeve. Within the Dharma circles, people say the mind a lot, or the body, but it's our mind. It's our body. It's good because it creates a little bit of disidentification, not being so aligned with my mind, but at the same time, it starts to sound a little distant, the mind. Okay. As our capacity grows, as our ability to be mindful grows and the mind begins to settle, then we begin to have more clarity, more luminosity to the mind, more capacity to see what is true and what is happening. And then we start to open up, which we've already begun doing, opening up to the sounds, the thoughts, the emotions, body sensations, until nothing is excluded in our practice. So I think sometimes people get confused and they think just paying attention to the breath is the end point. Paying attention to the breath is a great starting point and actually you could pay attention to the breath endlessly. And it's also about developing a capacity to be present with whatever is arising in our experience. Sometimes our mindfulness is very, very focused. You can think of a camera with a telephoto lens, right? It goes, it gets really focused. And so you're examining the breath in the most minute ways, noticing the slightest change in the movement of your abdomen. And you're just right there with this tiny, tiny perception. And sometimes our mindfulness is broad, really broad, wide open. They call this open monitoring or just open awareness and that 's more like the tele uh, sorry like the panoramic lens on the camera, so our, we can go from the the telescopic to the telephoto to the to the panoramic in a moment. And we may find there are certain times when our mind is naturally drawn to the more open awareness practice, where it doesn't seem like we're really focusing in on an anchor, but we have the capacity to just simply stay with things as they are one thing arising after the next. And it's not like one is better than the next. It's just they are different, they're different ways of having mindfulness. And you can go out, you can do walking meditation and stay incredibly internally focused, very mindful. Or you can do a very open, spacious walk up the hill where you're mindful of the sounds and the sights and the smells. And that is actually just as mindful as a concentrated one. It's just a different type of awareness or of mindfulness. So um, one of my friends was talking about when she was teaching her daughter to drive she thought that her daughter had excellent, excellent concentrated awareness. She could really stay connected to what was ahead of her on the road. She was doing great. But she had absolutely no peripheral vision and no open awareness. And so she would drive and there would be a mailbox and she would go straight into it. Because I mean, she was safe. So it was fine. But she had to learn to practice some more open awareness. My point is that, um, that it's about how we use that awareness. Right, we can use we can use the different types of mindfulness in more skillful and less skillful ways. So, so this is this is somewhat this is just a little bit about the mechanism, the mechanics of mindfulness, how how why we're doing what we're doing. And I want to shift over to the intention piece because I think the intention of Shauna Shapiro's model is actually the most interesting piece. Because before she wrote this paper in 2006, a lot of people were talking about just mindfulness being the first two, the the attention, or, well, attitude and attention. So a lot of the research was talking about it's just you pay attention and you pay attention in a specific way. But then she added this third component of intention. And inten- And when she talks about intention, what she talks about is that there's... And there's an intention that we come into our meditation practice with, with first, and there are three, self-regulation, self-exploration, and uh, self-transcendence. And so you know, for those of you who've been teaching, you've probably experienced a lot of people show up at the door because they're stressed out and they just need some relief. And some of you find that as as uh, you may have this for yourselves that as you practice maybe you were the person who showed up at my, with, to learn mindfulness because you were stressed out, but as you practice you began to see that it was not merely about being free from stress; it was about a, a deep dive into yourself. Right? That we began to see ourselves in a whole new way. That all this exploration happened. And then, for some of us who 've gone in much deeper, we find that there 's even more doorways into understanding ourselves and to deeper levels of what she 's calling self transcendence or liberative approaches to mindfulness and so it doesn 't actually matter where you fall in that spectrum you, what, you're, what you do you, it will guide you you can fa- you can trust your practice if you 're here because you 're stressed out you 're here because you 're stressed out but, but it often can it's kind of I often see it's almost like this big funnel. People come in out of stress, and as they and and, and as they practice, they begin to see the benefits, and the um, their motivation often changes, and it doesn't have to. A lot of people just learn how to work with stress and then leave from there, and that's fine. So let's look at these pieces, the self-regulation. This is the results we see. From basic practice, I'm less stressed out. I can calm down. I have more ease in my life. I can calm myself down in the midst of my difficulties. All right, another story about my kid. Sorry if I inundate you with them, but what can I do? Um, I was in uh, Bed Bath and Beyond with my daughter. And it was, she was about two years old. It was very stressful. I was waiting online, a really long line, and I couldn't it, whoever was supposed to help me was not helping me. There was a long line, it was way out was waiting. And finally, by the time I got through, meanwhile, the other line that I didn't chose had gone really fast. Um, I went back into the car, put my daughter in the car, sat down, and I just started to I said, "Mommy's really angry. I'm angry. I'm really frustrated I'm so frustrated." And this little voice from the back. It was, breathe, Mommy. <laughs> and I, um, I was so proud of her. It helped me. <laughs> it helped me a lot. And, you know, for those of you who have been working in schools, I'm sure you've seen, had the experience of kids saying how they've helped their parents by learning the practice, right? So... That self-regulation is tremendously helpful, tremendously helpful, and a big piece of why we do this. It helps, of course, with emotional regulation. Now, you have probably been having a lot of, um, well, I shouldn't say this, many of us have been having strong emotions, strong thoughts that have captured us, have caught us. And what I find I just love the gift of mindfulness for the way it helps us navigate the emotions, our emotional world, so that we're not so caught in the emotions in a way that we have more space, more non-identification. Most of you are probably familiar with the acronym RAIN, such a helpful tool that I teach all the time, recognize, accept, or allow, investigate, and not identify with. So when we're caught in an emotion, when you've been practicing and a strong emotion is happening, just the simple act of labeling it, gives, it a, gives yourself a bit of space. We're not so caught by it. The science behind this is kind of interesting. They, um, they did a, a study at UCLA, I think around 2000, and, I can't remember, a few years ago. And, um, and they, had, they, had, they had images flashed on a screen And the images were flashed on the screen of um, people who were disgusted or scared or sad. And the people, were their brains were being scanned as they were looking at the images. What they had to do was label the images correctly. So if a person was scared, they had to say scared. Or if the person was disgusted, disgust. And then the control group was looking at it, but they just had to give them a name. Label their gender correctly. And what they found is that when our brains are activated because something is, um, is scary, something is emotionally arousing, our brain, the amygdala is activated. So the amygdala is that almond-shaped part deep in the brain that is, um, that we don't really have a lot of control over. It'll just get active. You see a snake, your amygdala fires. You get pissed off, your amygdala fires, okay? We don't have a lot of control over that. But when the people correctly labeled what they saw, it kicked in their prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is what we think of as the CEO of our brain. It's responsible for executive functioning, right? It's responsible for flexible thinking, for delayed gratification, for working memory, and it helps with emotional regulation, so just in the moment of being able to say, oh, I'm scared, it actually calms our brain. It calms our brain down. So when you're practicing today and you have a moment of, oh, I'm really aversive. People were talking today about having a lot of aversion. Oh, I hate this. Why am I here? I don't I want to get out of here. Okay. Aversion. We label it. Remember Bob talked about the hindrances last night. Just labeling it can calm our body and mind. But we don't stop there that 's just the "r in rain, the a accept or allow, let it be, let it be there. Is it okay to have this emotion uh, sometimes it doesn 't feel like it 's okay, and that was what great when Bob was saying today. just hate it it 's I hate this pain, I hate this emotion it 's awful so that 's what we notice right so if, in other words, if you 're having a difficult emotion and you realize that you hate that emotion or you 're scared of that emotion that becomes the new emotion that you can attend to. Bring your attention, bring your mindfulness to that. The I is investigate. Investigating in our bodies what we're feeling. Investigate does not mean think about it and go through your past history and try to figure it out. Investigate means what is the direct experience in the present moment of what I'm feeling. My heart is racing, my stomach is clenched, my da- jaw is clenched. This is the actual present moment experience that we can wake up to. And when we see that, when we do that process, it becomes a kind of, um, we, we send ourselves automatically into non identification. We become less caught in the story, not so personalized right? It moves from being the emotion which is so difficult or the hindrance or the, the aversion or the sleepiness into, uh, sorry, my sleepiness, my aversion, my emotion into the sleepiness. So the shift is from my to the. It's not so personalized. Emotions and these hindrances and everything really is like weather patterns, They're constantly moving through our body and mind. It's just that we sort of grab onto them. We hold onto them really, really tightly. And they don't want to go. They feel like they're never going to go. But we can settle back and say, Ooh, I'm just really sleepy. And trust that there's a process of it moving through you. Then it does move through you. And not only that, we witness the process of it moving through you. When my daughter is having a tantrum, As for most of you who know, those of you who know developmental psychology know that a child at that age doesn't really have a developed prefrontal cortex, right? So what do you do? The child is having a tantrum. Well, when she's tantruming, I'm her prefrontal cortex, right? I basically will hold her or if she doesn't want to be held, I'll be there and just give her mindfulness and be present to her the best I can. I'll use words and cues to say, oh, sounds like you're really angry. So I'm, I'm, I'm labeling it. I'm holding it. I obviously am not feeling it for her, but I'm just holding the space for her to feel her feelings. And I'm, of course, managing my own feelings, right? Because, you know, one of the things I've learned as a parent is when my child is in distress, I want her to feel better so that I can feel better. I'm learning to be to, to be mindful when that's happening inside me so that I don't act out of that right away. So I hold the space for her to have her tantrum and she, you know, screams, I hate this or I hate you or whatever is going on. And at some point, if I hold this space long enough with love and compassion and fearlessness for her and for me, she will transition through it and she will come out the other side. And I remember the first time I ever witnessed this with her and she finally stopped all the crying and there she was sitting with me and her face was so bright and her eyes and she looked at me and she said, Mommy, your eyes are brown and black and white and it was like she went from this total being lost in the emotion, lost in the fit, to completely present with me right there. And, and it was because, I think it was because I held her there. And I tell you this story because basically that's what you got to do for yourself that's what we do with mindfulness when we're in the midst of difficult stuff we are having to be our own we have to we have to activate our prefrontal cortex we have to be the mom or the dad who can hold this child who is me in the space of love and fearlessness and compassion in the midst of the hard stuff and that is the work that we're doing as we do it, we break the identification. We break the sense of me, me, me. We think, you know, most of the time we think we're the center of the universe. Kids think they're the center of the universe when they're that little because they, developmentally they haven't gotten past that, right? My, my friend was just telling me a story about her um, her son who's about four She was having some friends over, and she handed them all. uh, He handed them all these little things he had made, and they opened them up, and inside was was money. And they they were all thank you, what a wonderful gift because it was very sweet, you know. And then he said, and they said, why did you give us give us money? And he goes, so you can buy me a gift. (laughs) And it was just like this perfect thing of kids, right? This kind of self self centered, um, like I am the center of the universe. Through practice we begin to decenter ourselves, in a sense. We stop seeing, we stop getting so caught in our dramas. We start having more space and more ability to laugh at these dramas and go, oh, okay, there's my neuroses arising. There's my fear. There's me caught in another story. Again, I'm caught in that same story. I'm still at work. Okay, it's day two, I'm, I'm still at work. Isn't that interesting? look at my mind, look at my mind's capacity for being stuck. And we we can learn so much when we begin to see our mind as a kind of, we can become a scientist of our mind. And notice the way we get on those trains. I often talk about our thoughts as a train that we get on. We get on the train and that train leaves the station and 20 miles later, or 20 minutes later, we go, oh, I've been on that train. And at that moment, we have the option to get off the train, the story. Or we could never get on the train in the first place. Right? We can stay at the station and let these thoughts go, not get on them, not get caught, not get lost and identified. I have to say that as much as I hate the song, Let It Go, <laughs> I love what the words are. <laughs> For those of you who don't have kids, this, the song that is the most popular song right now is Let It Go. <laughs> it's amazing. Let it go. You could hear it all day long. Let it go, right? It's not about what we're doing here, really. It's about letting go of the facade or something. But but um, this the emphasis, this is what we're doing here. We're practicing letting go, getting off the train, not being so lost in our thoughts, but finding that capacity to um, to let go, to be present, to wake up moment after moment to the truth of being right here, right now. When we're in the present moment, all of the stories, all of the... <sighs> It's just stories. It's thoughts passing through our minds in the form of images, words, senses, feelings. We don't have to grab onto anything. We really don't. And as you're practicing here, you're seeing that. You're seeing these thoughts coming and going. And if you grab on, it is going to hurt, right? One of our teachers came up with the analogy of rope burn. Right With the, thought, the thoughts and the everything, all of our identification, it's just we're holding on so tightly and the rope is just going by as fast as it can and is burning, burning our hands. Because we hold on. When we can let go, which is what the practice teaches us, then it's just a set of thoughts and emotions, feelings passing us by. So this is, i am sort of entered the territory, I forgot to say, i sort of entered the territory of the second, second motivation, which is self-exploration. So there's self-regulation, which I was talking about a little while ago, and self-exploration is when we begin to let go of the thoughts and the stories and understand ourselves in that way. When we begin to examine our emotions and see through them. When we learn, to, um, we learn more about ourselves, meditation, as I think you're, you know, is such a microcosm. What's happening in here is what's happening out there for us. Well, and even in the world, in the greater world, we can say that. You're ha- probably having a war in your head, right? Right. Well, there's wars going on out there. So we could say it in the greater context, meditation is a microcosm. But what I actually mean is that what you're experiencing today, you probably are experiencing in your life, in some ways. So if you're the person who came into meditation trying to get an A and do it perfectly, you may be doing that in other places in your life. If you're a person that when you experience a little bit of pain, it's really, really uncomfortable, it might be that way out in your life. There's so many ways in which we get to see the truth about ourselves. And that's the beauty of the self-exploration nature of mindfulness. That's why, in my view, just going in for self-regulation, it's great, it helps. It helps you breathe. But the self-exploration piece is where we open to ourselves. I think about the wisdom that has come over the years that I fully attribute to practice. I just, so much I've seen in my own practice over the years about myself that I've learned simply by calming and concentrating my mind and opening to the moment-to-moment experience that happens. I remember this one time I was, um, I was meditating on a long retreat at Insight Meditation Society and, um, it, I was in this kind of funny room down in the basement. It was before they did a whole restoration of the center, but I was down in this room and, um, I was afraid I was going to get cold. It was starting to be the winter. So I started stockpiling blankets. Okay. So they had a big blanket box or something and I started stockpiling blankets, but my room didn't really ever seem to get cold. <laughs> and so there was, it was, it went on for, I had a lot of blankets, a lot of blankets and, um, at some point one day I was walking past the notice board and there was a note on the notice board that says, if you have any extra blankets, please return them because some yogis need, are cold and need extra blankets. And I looked at that and I thought, well that doesn't apply to me. <laughs> I might get cold. <laughs> so, so I went back to my meditation and I just kept walking past that and I was walked past it for days and days and days. <laughs> And I finally realized, I guess it does apply to me. And so I, I had this moment where I just, I just, I just said, I'm going to do it, I'm going to go back. So it's about two in the morning, I sneak back into my room, I grab my whole pile of blankets, and I sneak, 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 hoping no one catches me, it's two in the morning, and I put this big pile down, and I just burst into tears. Because I saw in that moment, just how hard I work to control things to make myself happy and that if I could just get the right amount of blankets then I would be safe. That was what I believed and then in that moment I saw that wait a minute it's not just me doing that everybody's doing that everybody Right. Everybody is trying to control their environment, to keep their lives safe, to keep themselves happy, to keep themselves warm enough to have the right. And it just I could just suddenly see it was almost as if I could look into the whole look through this lens at the state of the planet where everybody was just trying to keep their nation safe and just trying to keep their families safe and their communities and that there was on some level nothing wrong with it but on the other level it's what isolates us. It's what isolates us and keeps us separate and keeps us scared and in the illusion of control. And it was just, it was such a profound moment for me Um, and I share it with you right now just as an example of the types of self-exploration that happens as we practice. When I started meditating, I didn't start meditating to become a meditation teacher. I started meditating because I loved it, because I was so interested in my mind and my heart and my body. That's why I practiced. So the insights may come you may have noticed already insights arising. Insights can happen through the deep concentration or deeper concentration. They're not something we can force. They often come out of us from a deeper place of knowing, not our head, of course. If they come from our head, there aren't really insights, they're just uh, knowledge. And this leads to the last component that I just want to briefly touch on, which is the, in, the, the motivation of practicing for self-transcendence. And self-transcendence is a funny word, because I think it could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. But as we practice, we can often have deep insights into the nature of reality. Bob talked last night about the marks of existence, the three characteristics impermanence, suffering, not self. That when we practice with depth over time, we can, have a, we can awaken in ways that we might never have imagined possible. And this is the promise of mindfulness, and this is why it's so interesting that mindfulness has become such a cultural phenomenon because people are probably only seeing like one, the, the high end of the funnel, not the depth end of the funnel. So we begin to practice and we, uh, we, I mean, we go into practice and we practice over time and we come in contact with our true luminous nature of who we really are. And we come in contact with the reality of things. And we recognize the interdependence. And we recognize the great heart of compassion. And we recognize the wisdom mind of no self. And this is extraordinary when our practice, when mindfulness, the simple act of paying attention, takes us there. This is a quote from Mingyur Rinpoche, who um, a Buddhist teacher, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, who who kind of ties it all back together. He says, "We don't have to look outside the present moment to experience wisdom, compassion, and the boundless purity of our true nature. In fact," These things can't be found anywhere but the present moment. So let's take a moment to ourselves. So just feeling your body present here. Checking in and ask yourself, where is what's my motivation? Why do I practice mindfulness? And as we notice ourselves here, right here, right now, just let yourself be exactly where you are. We don't have to look outside the present moment to experience wisdom, compassion, and the boundless purity of our true nature. In fact, these things can't be found anywhere but the present moment. Thank you for your attention. And um, just a quick announcement. Mark has not been around. He's been, he had another teaching obligation down the hill, but he'll be back first thing in the morning. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.